himself uh, not only vindicates uh, by his resurrection that he is, in fact, the Messiah, but then walks his disciples through it in Luke chapter 23. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, not 23, 24. <clears throat> the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when confronted with Jesus, who has been kept, uh, uh, they have been kept from seeing him, uh, is going to approach them. And he says, why are you so dismayed? Why are you upset? And they replied in Luke twenty four nineteen, uh, the things about, you know, so I, don't you know about the things that have happened? And, and he says, what things? And they say, well, you know, all this stuff about Jesus. And then as it says, it goes on in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. Um, what's interesting about this is that in these texts that reference in the New Testament, how the Old Testament scriptures, how the Hebrew Bible is organized, we only have one reference to the writings. Uh, we have Jesus saying, on this all of the law and the prophets hang, or this is the sum of the law and the prophets, the great, the great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, or one of the two great. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. The only place in the New Testament that references the writings actually doesn't call them the writings at all. It calls them the Psalms. This is, he, he showed them in the law how all things were pointing to him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, so lest we think that the writings is only just the Psalms in Jesus' day, we suspect that the reason that the author there uh, indicates the Psalms is that the Psalms is the largest, it's the head of the writings, it's the largest body of literature. Um, and yet, even though that's the designation it's given, if you capture the whole scope of what the writings are, you'll see that calling them psalms does not do them justice. In, in fact, uh, what we have come to understand is that uh, the ketuvim, or the writings, uh, passive participle in Hebrew here, those things that are written, is really kind of a catch-all category. Um, and in the words of Rolf Rentdorf in his Old Testament introduction, the contours of the writings are more blurred than those of the two preceding parts, that is, the Torah and the Prophets, it contains writings of very different character, the common feature of which is essentially that they have not been incorporated into one of the other parts of the canon, which is to say the only thing they have in common is that they're unlike everything else. <laughs> so when I think about how Michael has chosen me, I think, oh, you've, left, you've given me the leftovers. <laughs> so, but I can forgive him for that. Give me a second here. I'm going to... Throat. And back on, I believe. Okay, good. So, what are the writings? Uh, I've outlined here for you what books are included in the Ketuvim, in the Jewish canon, and of course, at the head of my list is the Psalms. This is the order that you'll find them in today. We're going to see in a moment that is not always the order that they've had. But Psalms is at the head, perhaps in part because it is the largest book, but perhaps also for certain other considerations, followed by Proverbs, then Job. Then we have the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, followed finally in the, in the Jewish canon by Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. I've also listed their Hebrew names here when they're substantially different. I mean, obviously, if I don't need to say, oh, in Hebrew, you say Ruth, Ruth. Like, okay, big deal, right? Or Esther instead of Esther, which not, you don't even pronounce it differently. Uh, unlike Job, which in Hebrew is actually Eov, which is quite a different 
uh, pronunciation. Now, uh, in addition to this, we actually have subcategories in the Jewish tradition. Uh, the first three are called the Sifre Emet, which means books of truth. The second, the Chamesh Magilot, or the five scrolls. And then the, I mean, and it really gets to the bottom of the barrel here, and then everything else. As a matter of fact, we, we, we have this book, Chronicles. Uh, we call it Chronicles because that's what St. Jerome gave us when he translated the Vulgate. He said, this is a good translation of the word. Divrei hayamim, the words of the days. That's the Hebrew title. But in the Greek tradition, and I believe, Michael, you've covered some Bible translations, so you've talked about the Septuagint, yes? Okay, so in the Septuagint, the book of Chronicles is called Paralipomena, which literally means leftovers. <laughs> so, I mean, you really can't, you can't get better than this, right? Not only is the Ketuvim sort of like the, the, scrap, the junk drawer of the Old Testament, but even at the very end of it, we don't even have a classification system for these other books. They're just there. Okay, that's not to diminish their significance, and, and we'll talk about that uh, as we go along. Now, the first category of these 11 books, and by, by the way, notice I said 11 books, and you might be thinking if you count that up, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Wait a second, there's 12 books here. In the Jewish tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're considered one book. This drives people mad because, uh, you know, in, re- in reality, according to Jewish tradition, there are only 24 books in the Old Testament, okay? But if you, ask, if you ask, ask a good Protestant, how many books are there in the Bible? And they'll give you some answer, like 66 books in the Bible, you know? The math doesn't add up. And that is because in the Jewish tradition, First and Second Samuel are not two books, they're one. First and Second Kings are not two books, they're one. First and Second Chronicles are not two books, they're one. And then in addition, and they, this is where they really go off, and you may have covered this uh, with uh, your, your teacher on, on the prophets, all of the 12 minor prophets are just considered one book because they're short. Okay, so the, no, the numeration is off. Just, just wanted to say that. So these 11 books, falling in this catch-all category, the, everything else that's written, as if the previous things weren't written as well, um, starts with the Sifre Emet. Now, uh, lest we get overindulgent uh, in thinking that this is somehow significant for their meaning, their, their content, although certainly some parts of it are, uh, the reason that it takes this, uh, this name is simply that it's a, it's a Hebrew acronym, okay? If you organize them differently, you put the book of Job first, put the book of Proverbs second, and the book of Psalms third, so you essentially reverse the order, and you get this in Hebrew, Yov, Mishlei, and Tehillim, and that spells in Hebrew, Emet, those three letters right there. That's the word for truth. Um, these three books are unique in the Hebrew Bible in the sense that not only are they clustered together and, and referred to as the Sifre Emet, but um, w- for some reason, perhaps because at least Psalms is a musical book, they are given a very different accentual system than the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Now, I don't want to go too much into this, but if you hadn't heard already or if you didn't know, the Hebrew Bible is uh, appointed with not only consonants and vowels, but what we call cantillation marks or accentual marks. Uh, and and they're, they're a very complicated system that the medieval Masoretes came up with to indicate where pauses are in the manuscript and you know, where we should put a comma, where we should put a period, how we should subdivide the senses of passage that later actually at some point become associated with musical notation. And because these books are, uh, especially Psalms, this is a, a hymn book for ancient Israel, it is music, 
uh, the, the tonal system is actually different. The, the, accent, the same sorts of symbols and signs are used in a fundamentally different way here. So actually, if, if I have my Hebrew Bible today, I actually have a, a little slip of paper that all Hebrew Bibles come with called the tabulak centum, the table of accents. And on the one side it says, for everything else, use this. And then you flip it and it says, but for the sifre, I meant use this. So just to make things more complicated. Now, second category comprising the Song of Songs, also called the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. We call these the Chamesh Megillot, or the Five Scrolls. In Jewish tradition, these are uh, read at five different festivals throughout the year. The first one that would be read during the, the, the religious year is the Song of Songs, which is read in the month of Nisan at Passover. Um, of course, this is, there's a bit of a complicating factor in terms of what is the beginning of the year, uh, because we can't have anything simple. The Hebrew calendar actually has two New Year's. Right. Rosh Hashanah in the fall, that's you know traditional New Year. But then we also read in the Torah that the very first month of the year is Nisan, which is in the spring. So why not both? Matter of fact, the Talmud talks about there being several New Year's. There's a New Year for trees, a New Year for kings, a New Year for fruit. Okay? Because you know, New Year's is such a great celebration, you can't get enough. Right. So, in the religious new year, not the political new year, in the month of Nisan, on the 14th day of Nisan, uh, the celebration of Passover is enacted. Passover is the commemoration of God's uh, uh, salvation or rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, their captivity and bondage there. It signals the beginning of a relationship and so to that end, Song of Songs is addressing or is read publicly. Now, why? And we'll see in a, in a bit here what kind of the general content or gist of Song of Songs is. But it's a love poem. And so they, the, uh, the rabbis felt that this was an appropriate festival in which to read of this uh, as a way of sort of indexing God's love for his people and the mutuality of that relationship. Ruth, uh, in a different kind of framework, Ruth is read on the festival of Shavuot and weeks. And there's kind of a two-part reason for this. On the one hand, uh, Shavuot, which is actually just, it just means weeks in Hebrew, uh, is the commemoration of the time when, having gone out of Egypt and into the wilderness, uh, the, people of, uh, the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, meet the God of Israel, Yahweh, and they receive the Torah law. So weeks is, and we call it weeks, by the way, because it's a week of weeks. It's seven weeks uh, after the Passover marks the festival, right? And how, how many days would that be, by the way? 49, right, 49. And so uh, you count off 49 days, and then the very following day is the beginning of the festival. So in Greek, and this is why I'm, I, I'll, you'll understand why I'm saying this in a second. In Greek, the word for 50 is Pentecosta. So that is Pentecost. Now, you might have thought, isn't that a Christian thing? Well, no. Like most of our coolest things, we stole it. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. We're, you know, we, we have it in kind. So no, yeah. Um, and in this festival, which enshrines the giving of the law, and by the way, I don't have time to get into it, but you know, I, I want you to think at some point about what it is that Christianity celebrates on Pentecost and how that might be kind of related to what this is about, okay? Because there's, there's a real solid relationship there. Ruth is read. Now, it's, it's an interesting kind of double uh, thing here with Ruth because Ruth is a story of a non-Israelite woman who is in dire straits. She's lost her husband. Her, her mother-in-law is, is uh, 
herself a, a widow, and they're kind of destitute and they're struggling. And so they come back to the land of Judah in hopes of finding someone who will, who will take their plight on and help them out. And she successfully integrates with Israel, finds a kinsman redeemer to help her out of her, her situation, and in fact becomes a mother of a great one of Israel. Uh, and it's a story of redemption, and it's a story of what it means to become one of God's own. And, and the rabbis felt like that was a very appropriate message to share then on the festival of Shavuot, when receiving the Torah law, all of Israel becomes God's own in a covenant relationship. Um, likewise, uh, much of the story of Ruth takes place during the barley harvest. Um, this is how she actually gets her in to the, 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 the guy that she's kind of interested in. Uh, she works in the field for him. And we'll forget for a moment about feminism and power relations there because it's kind of weird. But <laughs> suffice it to say, you could do a really interesting analysis. <laughs> but Ruth is, the, uh, Ruth is a story about the barley harvest, and the barley harvest is also at this time of year. So there's a nice uh, syncopation there uh, with Shavuot. Lamentations, the third of the five scrolls, is uh, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a really... Uh, it's a mournful piece that is describing the post-destruction conditions of Jerusalem, and it is read traditionally on the ninth of Av or Tisha B'Av in the Jewish calendar. And this is the uh, the mournful celebration or commemoration of the destruction of God's temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it also, over the years, has rolled into other things. Uh, so the, the the ninth of Av in the Jewish community has really become a commemoration of all of the worst events. So I don't know if Kristallnacht was rolled into that or not, or if that may be celebrated separately still, but it is a commemoration of the Shoah or Holocaust and a number of other massive persecutions of Judaism or Jews uh, throughout history, the Tisha B'Av. And so Lamentations is read publicly in worship, liturgically, uh, to commemorate that event and to tie it back to the great loss, which is that that immediacy and intimacy with God vis-a-vis the temple. The fourth book, uh, which in English we call Ecclesiastes, in Hebrew we refer to as Kohelet. Uh, They both mean the same thing. Kohelet is somebody who calls a group to order. So, uh, you know, Michael is the Kohelet here, uh, one of them. Uh, And and he's the one who says, all right, let's get started, right? So that's what an Ecclesiastes is as well. And you can actually detect the word, uh, you know, ecclesiastical here. What what is an, an ecclesia? It's an assembly, not just a church, but an assembly, a group of people who have been called forth to, to gather. Okay? And Kohelet is read uh, in the, the fall festival of booths. I always joke with my wife, whenever I say the festival of booths, it sounds like I'm saying festival of booze. I was like, this must have been a really interesting time. Okay, no, Sukkot, uh, temporary, uh, uh, temporary shelters, tabernacles sometimes it's called, although what, what does that even mean anymore? Um, this is a festival that, that commemorates the wandering tradition of Israel. After Mount Sinai, and, and you know, perhaps you guys have covered this in your study of the Torah, uh, the story of Israel rolls on with them wandering in the wilderness for a time. Uh, they're preparing to go into the, into the promised land. Uh, they, there's a snafu. They send forth spies. The spies don't make a good report, and Yahweh disciplines the people by uh, refusing to allow them entry into the Holy Land. They spend the next 40 years encamped in the wilderness in essential longing and, and, and looking forward to uh, the promised land and being able to enter it. Uh, although the generation that actually had, had rebelled against Yahweh will never see it. It's only their children that will see it. 
kind of going along with this theme, we have the book of Kohelet in the five scrolls, which is uh, very much a meditation on the transitory nature of, nature of life. It's not for the faint of heart. It's depressing reading. And uh, for that reason, by the way, there were, there were some rabbis who said, really, is this, do we really want to put this in the canon? Um, but the, the wisdom of, of many prevailed, and they said, look, you know, this is, this is the real stuff of life. Um, there is something about the fact that life is not going to always satisfy. It's going to be temporary that we need to keep in mind uh, as a part of our theological kind of um, enterprise. So the fact that you know, it's read at a time which is transitory in the calendar year as they're making their way toward the, the ideal holy land and, and, and appearing in the land, um, we read uh, Kohelet as well. And then finally, Esther, which is kind of the, the ace in the hole, it, it, it makes total sense. Esther is read at Purim. Why is it read at Purim? Because Esther tells the story of how Purim started. So, you know, what else are you going to read? <laughs> One of the things that, that does happen in Purim that's unique is that the scroll of Esther has to be read all in one telling uh, in Hebrew. And, so, and this, is a, this is a very intense thing, and at the end of which there's lots of celebrating and noise and drinking. Yeah, because there's a lot of drinking at Purim. <coughs> they should call that the Festival of Booze. <clears throat> anyway. So, so this is kind of what that middle section is all about, the five scrolls, uh, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, uh, all of which are incorporated into uh, Israel's festival calendar, the Jewish festival calendar. As for the last category, most of these works tend to be historical in nature. Uh, Daniel is a little bit of the odd bird. It's just Daniel's Daniel. Uh, Daniel it stands out because even though it's tempting to want to, to read him as history, uh, none of the trappings of history are there. Uh, there is more of an emphasis on what we call telling a court tale, which is uh, a, a story about how a number of, of Jewish individuals gets along in their predicament in, in a foreign king's court and how they survive and what kinds of wily tricks they use to come out on top. Uh, perhaps might we look at this as advice, right? Uh, seven, uh, seven habits of highly effective Israelites kind of stuff. Maybe, okay? Uh, that's only the first half of Daniel. The second half of Daniel from chapters 7 to 12 goes off the rails and is what we call apocalyptic and on that account alone, Daniel stands uh, quite uniquely aside. So this is to the point of saying, even if we try to take those last three books and say, oh, those are historical books. No, they're not. Daniel's doing something totally different. It, it seems more like prophecy than that. Uh, and so it really does kind of underline this notion that even the third category, they've given up hope of trying to organize this collection. They said, just throw it in. It's fine. Okay. <clears throat> now, you may be wondering why I've written it this way, because if you look at your Bible, you will not see these books laid out this way. They are in a different order. This is the Jewish canonical order, but even that is, is that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, because as we're going to see in a moment here, uh, not all Jews had this notion. Okay, we, again, the order that we'll see today, if you open a Hebrew Bible, starts Psalms and goes all the way to Chronicles in this order. But look at what the Talmud says. Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Bava Bathra, 14b. The order of the writings is this. Ruth starts it. Ruth is first, then the book of Psalms, then Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So you can see Job and Proverbs are out of, uh, in a different order. Lamentations, Daniel, and the Scroll of Esther, and Ezra, and Chronicles. 
Okay, so we've got a number of things that are different from the order I've given you here. And then we have this interesting comment. Now, to someone who says Job lived in the time of Moses, so let the book of Job be at the top preceding the others, we say we don't begin with suffering because that's what the book of Job is all about. Okay, and then so someone might reply, oh, but, but the book of Ruth, which the writing opens with, is also about suffering. And yet the, uh, the respondent says, yes, but it's suffering that has a future of hope and redemption, which is kind of an interesting thing for the, the Talmudists to say here because the book of Job ends with hope for the future, but apparently he was not persuaded that it was actually that hopeful. He wasn't, he wasn't buying it. Okay. So lots of interesting things to note here in the fact that we have in one of the most important religious texts in Judaism a fundamentally different order of scripture than that which we get in uh, codifications of it today. Now it should be reminded, I should remind you that when we talk about canon order, and, and I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that I'm not repeating too much of what you've already heard, um, this is sort of an innovation that comes along with binding a Bible under two covers, right? This is a technological advancement that we all just take for granted. Uh, you know, in the days when Scripture was first being produced and read, they were produced on individual scrolls, um, which, you know, not to be uh, to put too fine a point on it, if you ever see anybody try to write Scripture like as if it's a scroll like this, just they're bonkers. They don't know what they're talking about. You don't, you don't read up and down. This is... This is the way we think, okay? Um, what they did as, as scrolls was side to side and then columns inside the scroll. And this is actually today what a Torah scroll looks like, if you've ever seen one. Um, and you actually, as you unroll it, you cover one column and you expose several others. Um, this is the format in which all early biblical books were produced and read and consumed. And so to that end, you know, it, it's talking about canonical order is is really more about talking about which one you pull off the shelf first and which one you pull off the shelf second. And it can become kind of confusing, and there's room for regional development. Okay? Uh, it's not until you get the codification in a codex form under two covers that it really becomes important, because when was the last time you cut certain sections of your, your book out and then replaced them in other places? It, you just don't do that. Not only would it be confusing, because then you know, every other time it's in a different place, but, you know, you, you risk damaging the book. The point is, is that uh, the fact that the Talmud has a different order than what eventually uh, came up is just an indication that there's some fluidity in canonical order, okay? And, and you might be thinking, who cares? We'll talk about why you should care in a, in a moment. But we're actually going to talk about something else that the author says here. Job lived in the time of Moses. That's an interesting thing to say. Um, and, and, and the reason we're going to go into this question of authorship uh, in a second and dating is because one of the ways that we might think about organizing a, a list of scriptures is by chronology. That is, in fact, what ends up happening with the Christian version of the canonical list in the Old Testament. The attempt is made to rejumble these books according to where they should appear in terms of the overall chronology of the story. That's why, if you open your Bibles... You won't find Ruth toward the end of your Bible. You'll find Ruth right after the book of Judges and right before 1 Samuel. The reason for this is that Ruth actually indicates that the story happens in the time of the Judges. So the Christian author said, well, then let's put it with the Judges, historical context. But then you could also say, why don't we put it in order of when it was written? Except we don't really know, right? That's a part of the problem. But authorship can be a lot of that discussion. And so 
let's look at what the Babylonian Talmud says about the authorship of the Ketuvim. Actually, in a section that talks about the authorship of the entirety of the Bible, probably for us crossing some bridges you guys have crossed before. Who wrote the books of the Bible? Well, Moses wrote his own book, namely the Torah. The portion of Balaam in the Torah, he also wrote, and he also wrote the book of Job. Moses wrote Job, right? That's according to the Talmud. Samuel wrote his own book, First and Second Samuel. He wrote the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Again, because Samuel is associated with the Judges, he's responsible for writing all of this. David wrote the book of Psalms. And now this is where things get a little bit complicated. David wrote the book of Psalms by means of ten elders of previous generations, assembling a collection that included compositions of others along with his own. And when the Talmud goes on, it actually starts with Adam. Adam has attributed the authorship of certain Psalms all the way down to the days of later writers. Jeremiah wrote his own book, as well as the book of Kings and Lamentations. Hezekiah, king of of Judah, and his colleagues wrote the following books, Isaiah, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. Notice here we have, aside from Isaiah, uh, three of the writings. So we've got a writing here, a writing here, and here, and these three. The members of the great assembly wrote the following, Ezekiel, the twelve prophets, Daniel, and the scroll of Esther. Ezra wrote his own book and the genealogy of the book of Chronicles until his period which is kind of curious because then you might wonder, well, what happened afterward? And I think, if I remember correctly, I think that they suggest that members of the Great Assembly write it later. And this seems to be a reference to the people who gather in the days of Ezra to hear the public reading of the law, something like that. So this is the Talmud's view of how the Bible came to be written and who's responsible. Okay? In short, you got multiple authors, all very famous except for this larger group here. Moses and Samuel, King David, King Solomon, Jeremiah, this great assembly, and then Ezra. Um, but we've noticed, uh, as scholars, we've noticed there are a number of problems with this hypothesis of authorship for the writings and other material. Um, and, you know, perhaps when you talked about Torah, you talked about the, did you guys talk about the question of mosaic authorship? No? Okay, well, that's a huge question. Okay, so you call that person back in, you start interrogating him. So why didn't you tell us about who wrote, who wrote the Torah? All right. But the first question that we might ask is, what does it mean to say that the book of Psalms was written by David? And even, even if you want to make the caveat of saying, well, other people helped, he just compiled it. David was the editor of a collection. Um, but the Talmud says that he edited and he added all these things up until the time that, you know, he was alive. Uh, not after, because, you know, being dead, he would have a hard time editing. I have a hard time editing and I'm alive. The point being... We have lots of material that very clearly comes from the exilic period, talking about the restoration of Zion, the rebuilding of the temple, all sorts of stuff, centuries after David is dead. This is a collection that is bigger than David. So how does the Talmud get this wrong? Right? Second, Ecclesiastes. They're attributed, along with Proverbs and Song of Songs, attributed to King Solomon. There are internal considerations for this. Song of Songs is attributed to... Uh, is attributed to Solomon because of a reference to the king of Israel. Um, Proverbs is associated with Solomon because the book of Kings actually reports that Solomon wrote many Proverbs and songs. Um, And then Ecclesiastes gets thrown in there as well because it starts with, thus says the preacher, the king of Jerusalem. Okay, Well, there are lots of kings of Jerusalem. How do we know it's Solomon? Well, because the Talmud says. The problem with this, at least for Ecclesiastes, never mind the Proverbs and the Song of Songs, 
is that Ecclesiastes uh, almost certainly is interacting with modes of thought and philosophy that we're not going to see until the, the Hellenistic period, after the dawn of uh, the empire of Alexander the Great in 333. So what does it mean to talk about Ecclesiastes acknowledging its, its attachments and associations with Hellenistic Greek thinking, and then also to call it Solomon's? Um, and in Solomon's day, I mean, the Greeks were just another Iron Age civilization eking out an empire and building Athens, right? So it's really kind of odd. Uh, not just pre-Socratic, but, but something. So there's a problem there. And then, and then last, but certainly not least, here, Daniel. We have abundant reasons to think that Daniel was not written uh, at, by, as, uh, sorry, by the men of the Great Assembly. Um, it was written perhaps in the second century BCE. Uh, the reasons we think this, we can perhaps discuss later, but uh, suffice it to say that there, there are lots of really important uh, things to talk about. So, so the question becomes, why then does the Talmud make these associations if they're not airtight? And I think a lot of it has to do with authority. This is a quotation from uh, Carl Vandertorn, uh, Scribal Culture, The Making of the Hebrew Bible, 2007 volume, I think. This is what he says. <clears throat> and, and it's kind of interesting. I like Vandertorn's approach here because what he argues is that Christians generally tend to think of the biblical canon as a list that was compiled and, and adjudicated and selected. And it was, is it on the list or is it not on the list? And if it is, great, it's canonical. If it's not, it's not. And Vandertorn says, no, we really don't want to think of it as a list. It's more like a time period. That anything that's written in this so-called canonical era is considered valued and scriptural. But anything that comes from after the canonical era has uh, less authority. The era of prophecy is the era of revelation, and thus, by the same token, it is the canonical era. Moses stands at its beginning, and Ezra at its end. Everything written that is holy and inspired can come from only their time. The scribes of the Hellenistic period did not draft a list, nor did they close the canon. They simply enunciated the principle that the time of revelation belonged in the past. And by the way, when he says this, he's actually pulling from things that we see written in the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud says that after, after the prophet Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Which is to say, you can't really talk about spirit-inspired writing and prophetic utterance truthfully after the third century, fourth century, sorry, fourth century. So if there's a book, and there are, uh, if there's a book that happens to come from after this time, they would look at it and say, mm, no, it's not spirit-inspired. Why? Because we believe that the spirit left Israel, which is its own interesting thing. Okay. A writer who wanted his text to gain the same status as the holy books had to convince his audience that his work was of high antiquity. And guess what? How do you do that? By attributing it to a classical author, right? That is why the, you know, we, we have this tradition about the Psalms being Davidic. Now, does that mean that David didn't have anything to do with the Psalms? No, not necessarily. Uh, it means that we don't know what he did and did not have to do with it. Like, King David is a very elusive figure. It doesn't, it doesn't help us that both King David and Solomon, who uh, even just canonically are so significant, they happen to, the story places them in the history of ancient Israel exactly in a time period that we refer to as the Dark Age or the Iron Age, uh, in which following a massive political and social upheaval and collapse in the late, at the end of the Late Bronze Age, people begin to pull back. Mesopotamia shrinks back, Egypt shrinks back, 
the Hittites are gone, everybody kind of minds their own business. And the reason this is a problem is that, um, generally speaking, we have our best understanding of what's happening in the history of this period when all of the pieces are in conversation with one another and writing documents and leaving records. And it just happens to be that in the days which the Bible assigns to David and Solomon, nobody's keeping those records because they don't care about anybody but their own households. Which is to say, uh, we, there's just so much we don't know about David and Solomon. Many Psalms do bear a title that says, of David, the problem being that it says simply, le David, which can also mean for David, in honor of David. So what do we do? Some Psalms are actually ascribed to uh, David in terms of being sung by David in a historical uh, conse- or a si- uh, situation in which he found himself. And maybe we could talk about Davidic authorship there. But it's very clear that he is not the only person contributing. But uh, to say that, you know, Joe Schmo down the, down the road, who's got his own garage band psalm production company, came up with a psalm that's really good and we should use it in the temple, it just doesn't fly. So they, they accorded these psalms canonical status by association with David. Now, canonical order again. The reason I, I want to talk about this uh, is, is because there is something more significant than just, oh, now we know facts. Facts are good, you know, better than alternative facts. Okay, we, we like real facts. Um, but there's a significance and a meaning here that uh, we re- can reveal by contrasting the way that Christians read uh, the Old Testament as opposed to how uh, Jewish people read the Hebrew Bible and its order. Namely this. Um, you see here, Ruth has been uh, placed at the head of this list right after Judges before Samuel and grouped together with a number of books that are identified as historical. And, and the virtue of this is that if you take you know, just one long run through you can get a fair shake of understanding of what the history of Israel is and, and what are all the parts, okay? So there's a long portion starting in uh, Genesis that runs all the way to Esther that tells the sort of long historical narrative of Israel that everything else can be fit into, okay? Then come the wisdom and poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, which essentially in this canonical status, in this middle place, becomes sort of this pause, this grand pause to reflect. You know, the, uh, the story of Israel that went before uh, is, is, is one of a lot of upheaval and rebellion and difficulty. So now we pause and we pray and we sing and we worship and we, and we question the meaning of life. And then once we're done with that, we turn to the prophets to have a fresh beating, starting with Isaiah going through Jeremiah. Now, Lamentations is placed after Jeremiah because there is that tradition that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations But also, uh, it's sort of guilty by association in the sense that Lamentations mourns over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which is what Jeremiah talks so much about. Makes a nice transitional to Ezekiel, and then Ezekiel is followed by Daniel. Uh, The Christian uh, concept here is uh, that Daniel belongs amongst the prophets. This is not found in the Jewish order. Daniel is sort of set aside. We don't really read him as prophecy quite in the same way. Uh, in a sense that has the effect of neutralizing some of his content. Okay? Now, as I said before, there was no absolute order to the writings in pre-modern Judaism, although with the advent of what we call the Rabbinic Bible, or Mikraot Gedolot, which is depicted here, uh, when it started being printed in the 16th century, very quickly the order noted on the previous page was established with chronicles at the end. But even already in the time of the Talmud, 
Chronicles was understood to be the final book of the Old Testament. And that's, by the way, that's kind of awkward because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the story of Esther come after Chronicles, historically, right? But no matter, don't read those last. Read Chronicles last, and, and we have to ask why. By the way, if you were never given an introduction to what a rabbinic Bible looks like and what it does, uh, what we have here, this is just one page uh, of the rabbinic Bible. On the right-hand side, we have the Hebrew Bible in one column, and then equipped with, uh, alongside of it, we actually have an Aramaic translation on the left, which is called a Targum. Uh, the tradition of the Targumim was started in the 3rd century BCE, uh, we think, and essentially, what, what it was doing was, for Jews who had lost the ability uh, to understand directly in Hebrew, uh, th- there was a, a massive political upheaval, and, and people stopped, they stopped speaking Hebrew, or they didn't have as much fluency. Aramaic became their mother tongue and vernacular. And so, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. But when they translated, they also used this as an opportunity to explain and interpret some problems in the text. So today, this becomes sort of like the first stop authorized interpreter of scripture. So whenever you see rabbis commenting, they'll say, well, Torah says this, or you know, the Tanakh says this, the, our, our Targum says this, helping us interpret. Now, not to stop there, but by the medieval period, multiple medieval commentators had added their voices to it, and those who were seen as uh, particularly outstanding and noteworthy have their comments uh, written circling the box of scripture. So we have up here the Ralbog, Levi ben Gershon, also known as Gersonides, his commentary is here. Uh, Rashi, uh, Rabbi Solomon of uh, Troyes in France, his comments here. And then uh, David Kimchi, the Radak, his brief comments are here. All right, so now, just that lesson aside, back to my point, which is the Christian Bible doesn't end with Chronicles, it ends with Malachi, the last prophet. Okay, and, and even the, the, the Jews would say, yeah, he's the last prophet after him, the Holy Spirit departed. So why don't they end their Bibles with him? Well, the point is this. Brevard Childs, who is a very well-known scholar for talking about the shapes of canons and how they mean things together collectively, we don't just extract a book, we think about where the book falls, said once in his introduction, canonical intentionality, by which I, I assume he means uh, placing books in a specific order for a reason. Canonical intentionality is coextensive with the meaning of the biblical text. That is to say, if you want to understand the Bible, part of understanding the Bible is what's the order of the books? Why does that matter? Well, because the order in which you read things affects things, right? Imagine you started your favorite book with the last page, you know, and then you, and you read backward. Well, you, well, first of all, that would be crazy. Um, but, you know, how, how, how different of a read that would be? It would reveal all the secrets, right? And you know, if you see a movie out of, out of order, right? It has an impact on, on your understanding of the rest of the material. Order provides some sort of index. Well, that's a 15-minute warning here. I, I'm a little long in the tooth sometimes, so I have to give myself some, some sort of balance. All right. Um, the order in which texts fall is an index to how they should be read. And when we read the Hebrew Bible with the end being Second Chronicles, the end of Second Chronicles, which details how after the destruction and desolation of the kingdom in 586 BCE under Nebuchadnezzar II, the people go into exile, but then the Persians come, Cyrus the Great comes, he liberates the Jews, he sends them back home and says, go rebuild your temple. That's the last phrase in the Hebrew Bible. 
And according to Sweeney, a Jewish interpreter of the Tanakh in his introduction, the Ketuvim, our material writings, the Ketuvim provides a model for the restoration of the ideals of Jewish life in the land of Israel and the world at large laid out in the Torah and disrupted in the prophets. So by this, Sweeney is pointing back not only to Chronicles, but why we have Proverbs, why we have Psalms. He's arguing that the Kittuvim becomes the blueprints for reconstructing in what we call the post-exilic period. How do you rebuild the community? And that is why it's placed at the end. It's placed at the end because after all the traumas and the disruptions, this is how you bring everything back together. That is to say... The end goal, the Jewish canon, suggests that the ultimate goal for God is getting the people of Israel back in their land, back on their feet, and back into sync with him. That's the end goal. Okay? Um, and notice, by the way, as, as far as Sweeney is concerned, the, all of that prophetic literature, which talked about the sins of Israel and the rebellion of Israel, that's a disruption. That is unwanted. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't warranted. It's, it's saying that the prophets are seen as a hiccup in the great divine plan. Is that the way Christians read the prophets? No. That's what's so fundamentally interesting about this, right? The Jewish canon suggests that the end goal is restoration of the land. Now, contrast that with the Christian canon that ends in Malachi. And what is the last thing that is said in the book of Malachi? On the day in which, uh, in the coming day of the of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, um, there will be great judgment. But before that day comes, I will send you Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, and people to repentance, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. Now that is strange, to say the least, because Elijah should have been dead, but he wasn't. And so this promise by promise by Malachi that there is a coming Elijah. By, by the way, this is not ignored by Jewish tradition. I mean, there are elements in which this is still a part of the story. But on some level, what's, what's kind of different here is the expectation that Elijah is going to come and he's going to perform some sort of task. And actually, Christian tradition associates the task of Elijah with the same task that all of the prophets before him had, you know, not only to come and judge and to proclaim the word of the Lord, but also to make the way for a king. The prophets were the linchpin in, in the idea of kingship in ancient Israel. It was how you knew who a king was when a prophet would anoint him. So Elijah is to come and, we think, initiate, reinitiate the kingship of Israel. So when we read in the New Testament, when Jesus says of John the Baptist, if you're prepared to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. He sees himself and he sees the ministry of John being a fulfillment of Malachi's promise. Which is to say that the story doesn't end with coming into the land again. The story begins to unfold further with Jesus as the Messiah and the proclamation of the new kingship of God. Okay? Likewise, in the Jewish canon, they place Daniel before Ezra and Nehemiah. Daniel is, is this very flamboyant, very powerful uh, set of symbolic texts all of which seem to point toward resurrection and future and salvation, which Christians often will read as indicating Jesus. Okay? Matter of fact, one of the great things that uh, you know, is, is found in Daniel is his vision of one like the Son of Man coming in, the, coming in power in the, in the clouds of heaven, coming up to the Ancient of Days and receiving kingship that lasts forever. And Jesus says, that is me. 
right? Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of the one like a son of man. So having Daniel with the prophets in the Christian canon means reading Daniel's promise as if it actually points forward to Jesus. But reading it before Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles in the Jewish canon means that his promise of restoration is really just talking about coming back to Israel. So there's a different meaning between different texts in this, in this case. We're not going to worry about dating the texts, although I will say that I think probably more often than not, um, the texts, at least in their final form, are crystallized in the post-exilic period. So if you really want to understand why they read the way they do, we ought to look to that horizon to understand them um, and not, not someplace else. Now, it's 10.05. Do we go till 10.15 or is it usually customary to... Okay, so we've got some time. By the way, I, I've, I've taken a long run at it here, but I do want you to feel comfortable if there's a question or you're, you have a comment or whatever, just let me know. I'm, I'm always happy, happy to run with whatever kinds of things you're, you're thinking about. So does anybody have any questions at this point? I'm making sense. It's clear. Good? Okay. No burning questions? Okay. Not for now yet. Okay. We'll see what we can, we can push you into. <laughs> so now let's talk about some of the content. The book of Psalms, for example, which at the, in, the, in the final formal you know, order of the Hebrew Bible is first. Okay? We have 150 Psalms uh, in the Jewish canon, which is also the canon that's shared by Western churches. I make a note of saying that there are more Psalms than this. Uh, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, there often are 151, sometimes uh, more than that, 152, 154. Uh, the Syriac Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church has... For sure, the, the 151st Psalm. The book of Psalms is like the writings in that it's this tremendous grab bag, very diverse. We've got Psalms in there that seem to go back to the very earliest days of Israel as a, as a nation. And then we have also material that clearly comes from late that reflects on post-exilic realities. And so, you know, how is it organized? How is it collected? What are the symbols? And, and how, does thing, how do things change over the time span? That's, that's an important question to ask. Um, and in fact, because of its diversity, there's all sorts of things you can do with Psalms, not just research-wise. There's tons of research that can be done in Psalms, how it relates to Israelite religion, uh, what, what it says about Israelite or Hebrew poetry, and things like that, but also like the theology of Psalms, how uh, it portrays God and humanity and what a, what a relationship with God looks like. Okay? Um, it is a blend in the sense also that the book of Psalms is a tremendous resource. Anybody who's been around a church that does hymns long enough will know, and if you, if you compare with the book of Psalms, how richly uh, the book of Psalms has informed our hymnology in the Christian church. Right? Uh, one of my favorite songs, um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. You guys, you guys sing that here? Yeah, it's a great hymn. Love that hymn. Um, and, and it's an interesting hymn because it, what it's essentially doing is it's, it is thanking God and it's praising God, but it's focused on how fortunate we are to be considered a part of his people uh, and, and a, a part of, uh, of his great divine plan. And it is very much pulled out of the book of Psalms, not just one, but several, and you can, you can track them. Okay? Uh, God's love, how great he is as a creator, all of the wonders of his hands, all of those things, the hope of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, these are the really great uh, wonderful parts of the book of Psalms that we love to talk about. Uh, probably, uh, I wouldn't be remiss in saying, though, that I, I, I can't, I'm sure you can't, remember the last time you sung a hymn in church that reflected on the crushing of your enemies 
uh, the breaking of their bones, their burial, and death. That's in there too. <laughs> it's got it all. I used to have a friend, as a matter of fact, he was uh, waffling on whether he, he wanted to be a Christian or not, and uh, the, the sticking point for him was, uh, was passages like Psalm 137, which is a really interesting poem. Al naharot bavel sham yashavnu gam bachinu bozochreinu etzion. By the rivers of Babylon we sat, we wept, we wept when we remembered Zion. It's a poem clearly coming after the destruction of Jerusalem, which again David did not see, hence not Davidic. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps. From there our captors asked for us songs, asked us for songs. Our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. It's good so far, right? Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to the foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy will be the one who pays you back for all you've done to us. Happy will they be who take your little babies and dash their heads against the rock. That doesn't make for a good hymn especially if you're at a pro-life rally. <laughs> Just saying. So, you know, you've got to weave in these little bits of humor because it's kind of gallows humor. Um, and he was troubled by this, and I would say to him, yeah, gosh, I know, I understand, but I feel like you're misunderstanding it here. I don't think it's included in the Bible for us to necessarily copy or emulate, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing to say because isn't that what we're supposed to do with the Bible? But it's in there for a reason. You know, over the years since he really challenged me with that, 20 years ago, I've come to a, a place of understanding why we have things like that in the Bible, why it's good that they're in there, why we shouldn't erase them, but why we should be very careful how we use them. And it has a lot to do with listening to the voice of the victim. Not owning the voice of the victim, but listening to the voice of the victim. And when I teach this in class, I, I usually talk to my students, all very impressionable undergraduates, all of whom are very horrified by this. And I say, you know, I know that from your perspective it seems horrible and undesirable, and why would something like this be in the Bible? But it does attest to a historical reality. The people of Jerusalem really did experience this kind of destruction. And if you read very closely, the behavior of smashing babies against rocks is said to be payback for what you already did to us, which is to say, you smashed our babies against rocks. Now we want to do the same for you. And so people will say, my students will say, well, still, it's just wrong. You don't repay evil with evil. And I said, well, that's a nice idealistic thing. But have you ever talked to some, someone who's been raped or defiled? Would you dare talk to that person and say, you know, I know you want to kill your, you know, your rapist, but you should just be a better person than that. No, you would never say something like that. You would say, I understand, right? I understand. The, the voice of a victim is a hard one to hear, especially if we're living in comfort and satisfaction. You know, oh, no, no, oh, we don't talk that way. That's disruptive. We don't like that. Uh, well, unless you're victimized. And then all of a sudden, you want to be able to give voice to that burning feeling of, of nausea in your stomach. You want to be able to speak it out, scream it out. And you want to know that you have a community in which you can do that without someone saying to you, shush, we don't talk that way. Right? 
So what's fascinating to me is my friend would say, I want to erase this from the Bible. And I'd say, would you erase you know, someone, someone who has a testimony to say about things that have happened to them? Would you erase their words too, just because they're bad, they're horrible, they're hard to hear? No. Then don't erase this either. But do understand that this book, this, the book of Psalms in particular, it's a very human book. It's not just, it's, we don't treat it just like words from, from God. It's, it's a complicated thing. It's very human. It's very enfleshed. And it has the voices of people who've been oppressed and crushed who are feeling that pain and who speak out of, of victimization. Now, the caveat being, if you're not victimized, don't talk like a victim. <laughs> because when a non-victimized person talks like a victim, it causes all sorts of bad, right? Uh, you know, when a non-victimized person talks like a victim is when we get some really horrendous stuff happening. Uh, which, is, of course, you know, even in modern Christian parlance, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there aren't realities or truths to this, but I often reflect on the fact that there are a lot of modern Christians in America today who really, who really deeply feel that, that Christianity is being persecuted in America. And I think, eh, that's probably putting a little bit too strong of a point on it. Uh, we still have a lot of power and sway, and we have to be very careful because the moment that we read a text like this from the position of power and triumph is the moment we subjugate that victor's, that victim's, that, that victim's mentality. That's not to say, again, like, that things aren't, aren't out there that are pitted against Christianity, and I'm not ignoring that, but all the more reason when we read, when we read books like the Psalms and we read these things that are kind of darker, not to just reject them, but also not to possess them as if it speaks for us. I mean, sometimes when you read the Bible, you need to embrace the fact that it speaks with its own voice very differently than I do, right? And it's not, it's not always going to be a, an experience that you'll share, thank God, right? No one wants to live through the things that these people live through. So that's, a, that's just a sample of, of this book of Psalms, the, the writings, how we might look at them, some of the lessons that we might derive from them. Uh, we don't have any more time today to go into any further, but I did want to sort of finish, and, and when, we, when I come back, I'll, I'll continue with this sort of walk through some of these books. Um, with just a, a first, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for bearing with me as I'm, I'm working through my cold. Um, we will have four more classes after this that we'll begin to kind of delve a little bit deeper into some of these writings. Um, my hope is, in particular, to spend a lot more time with the Psalms because they're so rich, so diverse, uh, to talk about wisdom literature in all of its different forms and what role it plays in ancient Israel, and maybe get a little bit into what makes Daniel so different. Um, but I do welcome you to ask questions and to make suggestions about where we take the course as well. So thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, I will see you next Sunday, unless I've scared you off with all this talk of Psalm 137. All right. <laughs>